0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sarah Kenna from Company Matters, Link Group's company secretarial and governance advice team. In this episode, we'll be playing back highlights from A Year Ahead, a recent event where a panel of experts were discussed corporate governance trends expected in 2022 and beyond. The conversation covers a range of topics relevant to shareholders, investors, and issuer companies, including ESG, dematerialisation and the future of AGMs. When you hit play, you might have been expecting to hear Jay Baker, the normal host of this show. Well, worry not, Jay was on the panel, so you get to hear plenty from him shortly. I'll let Jay and the other guests introduce themselves, though, when we dive in. This event was part of our AHEAD programme for corporate governance professionals. It was also our highest attended event to date, so if you're not already a member and would like to get involved, just click the link in the description for more information and you can sign up. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the AHEAD webinar, our first one for 2022. We've got a great panel today. I'm gonna to let them introduce themselves. So first we'll start with Melissa Kittermaster.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everybody. And my name is Melissa Kittermaster. I'm the chief executive of Assessoria Group, we're a professional services company and we work across sectors. For the past 20 years, I've been focused on board evaluation, sustainability, ESG, stakeholder engagement and non-financial reporting. Thanks, Melissa. Gee, over to you.
2: There we go. It worked. <laughs> uh, thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I managed to unmute myself. Uh, I'm Jay What's Baker. Good, I'm the head of industry. Here at Link. (laughs) I'm the head of industry here at Link and uh, I'm looking forward to discussing some of these very important um, messages and features uh, of 2022 that we are about to embark on.
0: And last but definitely not least, we have David Chase Lopes.
3: Good morning and Happy New Year to everyone. My name is David Chase Lopes and I'm the Managing Director uh, for the UK and EMEA for DF King. We're very active in AGM work, securing shareholder support uh, at annual general meetings, as well as M&A situations and activist defense work. So we'll look forward to participating in the call today. Thank you.
0: Thanks, David. So we've got quite a packed agenda, so I'm going to move straight on to ESG. It's something that, to be honest, we could spend the whole hour on. Um, and in fact, we will be spending more time on it, uh, on it as the AHEADS program later on in the year. Um, I think it goes without saying that ESG reporting is a good thing, nobody's arguing that, but companies are struggling with the uncertainty around reporting. So perhaps, Melissa, I could start with you. We've got the FCA's mandatory comply or explain regime for premium listed companies introduced last year, the UK statutory obligations being introduced for financial years starting on or after the 6th of April this year, and existing statutory non-financial information disclosures. So There's quite a lot going on already. What are the key areas of overlap between them?
1: Well, if I start with the the FRCs, as you mentioned, um, that came in um, at the beginning of last year, so we'll be be reporting it for a number of companies this year. That is just focused on premium listed companies. But the FRC is introducing again um, this January. So just as from 1st of January, the requirement that standard listing companies and also those in terms of um, asset managers and uh, pension funds and others will also come in, so they'll be reporting next year. And as you say, alongside that, government um, is going to be uh, introducing uh, requirements to report for climate-related disclosures based on TCFD, which will come into force from April, and that is going to capture a greater number of companies. So at the moment, it's comply or explain through the FCA. And that the reason they've done comply or explain um, rather than making it mandatory is they recognize that organizations are still trying to gather data that actually currently may not exist. So they realize that, that it's gonna be a journey and that we're not going to get there in one fell swoop. So it's encouraging companies to report and the idea with the uh, government legislation that that will capture a greater number of companies and I think moving on to sort of 2025 we're going to see that much more private companies probably smaller private companies will be captured and again I suspect that will be extended further because as you know that's a major agenda item for the government in terms of their um, focus on sustainability and climate related disclosures As we're touching on um, other areas in terms of comply and explain, the the FRC are also introducing this year the requirement to um, report and extend on diversity reporting, which is both premium listed and standard listing. And so they are looking to increase the threshold that was already um, a target as such, or a guide from the Hampton Alexander Review and also the Parker Review, to increase that threshold of um, female board members to 40%. And also not only female members, but also them to have a key role in the board. So one to either be CFO, the chair, the CID, um, or CFO. So again, looking at them to be a key role on the board as well. And also to support the requirement to have one um, director of color also on the board. So again, supporting some of the things that we've already seen companies already reporting on, but again, more focus in terms of those listing rules and and what are the requirements. And then of course, we already have the non-financial reporting requirements. We have section 172. So there's also lots of things that I would suggest we are still reporting on, still trying to improve the way we disclose, increase transparency where we can. So the list is getting longer rather than shorter and a lot of things for companies to consider. Thanks,
0: Melissa. Yeah, I always find it fascinating about the difference between what people have to report on and to, and versus what they choose to report on and, and the, the sort of disparity sometimes between um, what they need to report on versus what their investors want them to be reporting on. Um, David, perhaps I could bring you in at this point. What should companies look out for in their next annual report and prepare for during 2022?
3: I think from an ESG perspective, uh, a lot of it has to do with what some of the points that Melissa has mentioned around transparency. But generally, we think with our clients that if the group is trying to tell a story about why the board is fit for purpose today and tomorrow and that they're weaving in their ESG story across, let's say, the general preparation of their conversation on um, on the AGM it's very helpful because it helps whether they're publishing things directly or complying with with regulation, telling their ESG journey uh, through these different a- a- axes is quite quite impactful and we notice that it allows them to be directly developing their dialogue on these subjects with not only shareholders but stakeholders but also making sure that their constituencies can look at their ESG strategy from the perspective of the company and hammer home the idea that the board, as it is conceived, is doing the right things and is evolving the way that is hoped for, let's say.
0: Thank you. Um, Melissa, I'm, I'm sure you can add to that as well from your perspective.
1: Um, I think you know one of the big focus for this year, of course, for premium listed uh, companies is to be reporting against TCFD. Quite a few companies have already started. Some did it last year and some had previously been reporting. But for a number of companies, that's going to be the biggest hurdle is how can they um, articulate clearly around climate related issues, their governance, their strategy, and the scenario analysis that is expected under some of the risks is also going to be a challenge. Thinking about those metrics and the targets, not just around scope one and scope two, but some of the others around other elements, around waste and the use of their scope three and the value chain is going to be the greatest, I think, challenge going forward about how they do that. And also start to report on what that transition plan looks like. The transition plan to net zero, we're looking that we think legislation may came, come through in sort of 2023, 2024 from the UK government about having to report on a clear transition plan and not just a target that we're going to hit 2024. So I think around the climate over the, the big ones for me, I also think there needs to be more probably in terms of organisations articulating how they engage with their stakeholders A lot of them will talk about how they engage, they're not always very good in terms of what the stakeholders are asking for, wanting, and their perspective, and then what action the company is taking to address some of the stakeholder concerns, and I think that's the piece that's missing. And some information, uh, one of the reports from the FRC last year was about um, companies expanding their uh, reporting on stakeholder engagement. And the other area I think I'd finish with is more detail around purpose and ensuring that the purpose is clearly articulated and how that feeds into the business model and their strategy so that there's a clear link with the organisation's purpose and how they're reporting against um, and how that links into those social values.
0: Yeah, no, very, very important. just staying with you, Melissa. But thinking about that stakeholder piece, with all these sort of, with all these requirements, um, and especially in regard with the AGMs, do companies and boards in particular need sort of new strategies to tackle these challenges, both at the meetings themselves, from say an, an activist um, perspective, perhaps, but also in general terms?
1: I mean, for me to know your stakeholder is really, really important, and um, you know. As everybody knows, is to be very clear on who are your key stakeholders um, and not just shareholders and and not just employees and customers, but other interested parties to really know and map that and really understand that and to also understand what's material to them and then the different methods of engaging with them and we're very good at you know engaging with the shareholders in most cases however i still understand from investors that there's more they feel that companies are not perhaps as proactive as they need to be and 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 are often very reactive And I think it's only if you are proactive with your stakeholders that you can really understand where they're coming from, what the challenges and their expectations of you as an organisation and in your reporting, that you're then able to respond to some of those challenges because you're almost aware that ah. I know what's going to be raised from this particular shareholder, et cetera, and are able to manage that more effectively. So I think it really is about knowing your shareholders, engaging with your shareholders uh, and being able to have that open dialogue on an ongoing, proactive basis rather than reactive and being on the back foot.
0: Thank you. Jay, perhaps I could bring you in at this point to, um, well. Your views
2: on the same question, really. yeah, yeah, thank you, Sarah. Um, I mean, and just to counter Melissa, just slightly, I think that, uh, to, well, to be honest, uh, to break down ESG into its constituent parts, and I would suggest that that much is already being done. Um, I mean, comprehensive information is already available in most company annual reports and uh, standalone publications, as well as investor presentations. So, so, companies are now seeking permissions, for example, to. Uh, or for digital meetings, which, which meets all the ESG points. Uh, companies are increasing the number of uh, non-statutory shareholder meetings, especially in advance of the AGM, to improve that engagement. Uh, some companies have, or are looking to hold those very stakeholder meetings uh, that, that Melissa uh, referred to, uh, to allow that stakeholder voice. So that all meets the S and the G. And for many years, companies have sought to increase Electronic communications to adjust the environmental impact, um, but you know not all of this is in the gift of the issue company. And we have to remember that that you know shareholders and stakeholders alike must must take some steps to to engage socially themselves with their with their investment their investing companies, uh, and and to do that in an environmentally friendly manner. I mean, perhaps government could also do do something a little extra, as they did with Seagate, when Seagate came in as a, as a temporary measure during the pandemic, that, that, that helped um, with the AGM proposition uh, enormously and to digitise that. Um, so that's what I would say, carry on with, with, with more of the same and, and just, uh, I'd like to see a little bit more, more engagement from companies in, in
0: doing all of that. Great, thanks. Um, David, anything you'd like to add before I move on?
3: say in terms of of these subjects that um, really ESG is is pretty much at every point of the agenda if you think of and I would highlight that it isn't just E and um, and what I mean by that is that when you look at E it's effectively an opportunity at the AGM to talk about say on climate But it also could be an opportunity to discuss why your board of directors has the talent and the skills around environmental questions, around climate, carbon emissions, et cetera, that is fit for purpose or how you're trying to develop that board skill set and how it ties into your specific ESG strategy. Um, And also, obviously, stay on pay. Everything that has to do with remuneration hits almost every level of ESG, including extra financial quantifiable criteria that more and more as a prerequisite are seen as really being locked back into your ESG strategy. And if we think of S, you get, again, we've talked on the diversity issues uh, of a board board composition, say on pay as well, because more and more there is the question about the, equitability, the, the equity or the fairness of, of pay between uh, the lowest paid and the highest paid corporate officer. And um, that's something that's obviously important. And even when you get to G, obviously, the board of directors is is being voted on. (laughs) So they have to be able to demonstrate their competence, their ability, and their ability to listen to shareholders and stakeholders, how that ties into purpose, but also ultimately getting strong votes for all the resolutions from a high quorum is vital to demonstrate that in general, this company has the support of its constituencies.
0: So, David, on the subject of the board, do you think companies need to have specific ESG expertise on the board?
3: It would depend a lot as, a, as an ideal best practice. The question then is to make sure whatever the structure or board chooses, that it's fit for purpose for them and where they are in their journey. So it would, we're advising, for example, groups uh, on the continent who are not willing yet to do a say on climate, but have very developed uh, ESG strategies. Uh, if you think back to all the effort that's been done in the French market since uh, the, the COP21 in, in 2015, where they have a real ESG story to tell and that they, can, they need to say, this is what we're doing on say on climate, but this is what we're doing with ESG directly. And these are the skills that can do it. I think we recommend that these committees get established. And if they can't do it, they explain why still it works. You know, A lot of them, it's harder to keep it in the audit committee today, I'd say. And uh, there has to be a cohesive and coherent approach to it. If you have a, whatever the ESG strategy, strategy is, it has to permeate through so many other levels and you have to be able to demonstrate that the board can challenge and push back and understand how the management is trying to implement these key strategies, especially if you think that 2030 isn't far away, and it's all linked back to 2050 and getting to net zero.
0: So, Melissa, is that the expertise piece? Is that something you're seeing reflected on the boards that you're working with? Is there, are they do they have that specific?
1: They are starting to look at it. I wouldn't say that there are a huge number that would be classed as the ESG expert, just like we often have maybe a digital expert. I think there's two points I'd, I'd make on the board um, and their knowledge. I think it's important that every board member increases their knowledge on ESG so they understand how it affects the co- the company and can clearly articulate that. Appreciate that it's a broad area in terms of the different um, elements that they need to understand. But I also find that sometimes having a single expert on the board is not always healthy, what you tend to have is, um, as we've seen with the digital, is the translator that will then um, tell the rest of the board exactly what somebody might be advising on or telling them about. And what, what you can see is that um, board members will sit back and think, well, I'm not the expert, so therefore I'm not going to challenge and question. And one of the, the things that we need to ensure we have is diversity of thinking on a board. And therefore all board members should take the responsibility of upskilling themselves on ESG to understand ESG and to be able to challenge executive and those that are brought in to advise Um, and sometimes it's those questions i'm not saying it's the daft questions but those that are less informed but will actually get to the nub of the challenge or the problem and will then make the other board directors think in a different way or more laterally about the particular issue so I'm not saying no to an expert but I'm saying that other board members need to upskill themselves so that they still are, are able to contribute as they should as board members to any discussion that might be around ESG or climate related issues which I understand is more technical but you'd expect that on any technical subject that both is the responsibility of the board member to upskill themselves but also as the company to provide training on at um, annual away days and at board briefings so that they can um, upskill themselves. So I think it's a two-way thing, both the company support as well as the individual uh, board directors ensuring that they're upskilling themselves on the topic.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, effectively it has to become part of the whole company's culture, Um, you know, top to bottom to be effective. Um, Do you think the ESG performance, though, can effectively be linked to remuneration?
1: Well, we've seen over you know a number of years that um, there are a number of elements of ESG that are already being included. So I see clients that have you know had health and safety as part of their you know remuneration or metrics for a number of years, and I've got um, other clients that are certainly seeing um, customer um, satisfaction as a, a metric, and now emissions and climate related. Metrics are being included. And interestingly, one of the um, potential uh, legislation that's coming from the EU is that there is going to be a requirement that sustainability um, metrics and those to reduce emissions are, are on the initial sort of uh, discussion. So, in terms of uh, direction of travel, I suspect that we're going to see more, um, if not mandatory, but certainly guidance that that is is what we should be looking for. And I've certainly seen um, over the last few years, certainly remuneration and the sort of non-financials and those that would be for variable pay performance, particularly being included around ESG. Yeah, no, no, I
0: think it's something we'll see more and more, to be honest. Jay and David, actually, perhaps I could bring you all in here um, as we go to our final question around ESG. How does a company tell its ESG story in a, in a meaningful way? That's a good question. If I may
2: go first, Sarah, excuse yeah. me, David. Uh, well, as, well, as I said earlier, comprehensive information is, is available in most of the annual report and other documents already. But of course, presenting uh, this well and signposting the locations clearly is, is key. Also thinking of all possible delivery mechanisms. So uh, even including digital channels, I think. Uh, so what about the use of social media, for example, um, to tell the story? Uh, these platforms I think are perfect to to get a message out. And, and of course they're global. So that's gonna be hugely important to, to a lot of companies and shareholders and investors alike. So I think all of that, um, Delivery channel mechanism has got to be uh, the key for them at the moment, in relation to the, from what I can answer from the shareholders' point of view, from the investors' point of view. It's got to be uh, companies' have got to consider how best they can get that, that message out uh, via alternative means, not simply relying on a printed report. Is what
0: yeah. I would say. Well, you're right, and especially you know, cross generational investors, um, exactly right, we're not all like myself, 40 plus, and like to leaf through the pages. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Yeah. very true um david have you got anything to add there yeah um i mean a lot of when we work with
3: our clients on on you know how esg fits into the bigger picture and how they tell that story it does tie back into telling the board story and why that board is fit for purpose today and tomorrow and you know that it's sort of an inside outside looking experience they have to demonstrate to the outside world that they have the skills and the influence and the focus to think about these, these questions in the same way they would think of, let's say, challenging on finance, and then also be able to demonstrate that their mastery of these subjects is such that they can really challenge the implementation at the management level. And I think uh, a great example of a board's ability to manage ESG or or, or tie it into the bigger story of the company is how they have overseen the general response of their company to the pandemic over time because essentially it is a wonderfully challenging example of systemic risk. And it's a way to demonstrate that the skills overall were fit for purpose and that many various challenges that changed over time or were multiple at the same time were addressed as best as possible and constantly working not just for shareholder interest, but also for the wider stakeholders, which ties back to maybe where the modern investor is also trying to see focus and also connect companies back to the bigger world, given that we've all sort of experienced this together in a strange way.
0: Thanks, David. Um, Melissa, perhaps I can move to you for a final comment on that question before we move away from
1: ESG. All I would say, and I think being being sort of very boring, probably, I, I always say to companies, you know, don't try and do too much. Keep it focused. Go back to your stakeholders and materiality and be clear on why you're focusing on those elements of ESG away from the regulatory requirements. But why are you choosing them? How does that fit with your purpose? How does that fit with your business model and your strategy? And take fewer elements rather than more if you can, but really ensure they're embedded as part of the way you operate, part of that culture. Rather than trying to feel uh, almost a scattergun approach and try and cover off too much and, and you know, have policies, but you're not really embedding it and you're not really getting it into the culture. So that's what I would say. And then, of course, what you know, when when you get to that stage, um, everything you do and every way in which you approach, whether it's social media or your reporting, you know, it's kind of like that stick of rock. You've got it going through everything you do.
0: Yeah, I know. That's, that's an excellent analogy. Yeah. Um, Thank you. We could talk about ESG all day, as I said, and we've got a few questions, quite a few questions that have come through, so we'll come on to those at the end. Um, I'm going to move on to secondary capital raising. Jay, I know this is one of your favourite subjects. Uh, So we know the Treasury has launched a call for evidence on secondary capital raising, so with a view to improve processes, reduce costs of rights, etc. Do you think a switch to digital and paperless is the answer? Um, and can it really be achieved without mandating shareholders um, provide email addresses on mm. the register?
2: No, good. It's a, it's a, it's a good question, Sarah. Uh, switch to paper and digital. Uh, in short, yes. Uh, I think an overhaul of the current capitalising processes is well overdue, actually, and and the digital approach must be uh, must be what's firmly on the agenda. Um, now, why why do I say that? You know, use of the del- digital delivery of information, uh, documents, payments, and confirmations uh, could speed up the process enormously and, and reduce costs whilst delivering rights uh, securely to all the shareholders. So as it stands, use of email addresses for managing shareholder accounts has been really dependent on issuers, uh, registrars, and, and, and uh, the shareholders taking a proactive initiative, if you like, to, to encourage their use because it's not mandated. We've made progress, but take up by by shareholders is not universal. And therein lies a problem, because in trying to implement a new process, like the new way of running a rights issue, we need buy-in from the investor, from the shareholder, um, to, to engage in the digital. So without electronic addresses in place, um, many initiatives just could stifle, um, or be stifled, or even difficult to deliver, uh, include the secondary capital rating. So there is a growing case for mandating email addresses as part of the share register. I'm certainly in favour of it, um, and particularly given that internet use and household access is approaching 100% of the population. So so why not do it? I personally think we should be looking to mandate electronic addresses most definitely. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. <laughs>
0: yeah. When is it that the, the, the um the recommendations are due
2: back to the Chancellor? So, we had a call just a couple of days ago on it actually, just to think some some more uh, stakeholder interaction if you like. Um, We are expecting a report back to the Chancellor uh, in the spring this year and some report out from uh, the Chancellor's office shortly thereafter I would imagine. So more
0: to follow. Okay, thanks Jay. on another uh, one of your favourite subjects, um, intermediation and dematerialisation, not <laughs> easy to unless you've had a couple of coffees, which thankfully I have. Um, <laughs> we know that the Law Commission has said that the intermediated model for shareholding should stay and, and be improved. Mm. What, what are the practical measures that can be introduced in the sort of short to medium term uh, to improve the model and to improve the exercise of retail shareholder rights?
2: Very important question. I mean, this has received some interest over over recent times. People held within the intermediated model, for those people that that are not quite sure what that means, that means in nominee accounts. Um, They don't receive any rights whatsoever, other than the delivery of dividend payments that that have been passed down by the registered shareholder. Uh, And therein lies a distinction, actually. So someone invested in a company via an intermediated model, i.e. they're in a nominee position. Um, They're not shareholder. They're an investor. Um, So the shareholder rights are are only extended to shareholders recorded in the register and not to the underlying beneficiaries, if you like. Companies who are the registered shareholders will extend rights to the layers of investors below, but it is the nominee that exercises the ultimate right based on the instructions it receives. So it's very convoluted and and, uh, that chain is is very difficult to manage, I guess, for the intermediaries. So it's going to require... I would imagine the the nominee companies extend rights to underlying investors, but that includes costs on them um, and and it rather depends on the contractual relationship it has with its investors and I think yeah the nominee companies are, are, are not going to be uh, overly excited about uh, increasing costs on on its investor or rather its client base. I think it's worth having a look at what's happened in Ireland um, and what we have seen in Ireland. Last year, this this to to highlight the point about intermediation. So we have a reduction in transparency in Ireland due to the additional level of intermediation caused by the new CSD that came in in, in March 2021. Um, that has led to an increased cost uh, for the issuer in disclosures uh, under its 1062 process 793 in the UK. Uh, we have seen additional complications on the voting and dividend payment flows as well. So whilst we will Uh, always have a level of intermediation. Do we need better choice for the investor? And I would say yes on that. So back to the UK, um, we do, of course, have changes to voting models which allow almost direct access uh, via connected platforms, like proximity uh, being a case in point. Um, And could we see blockchain technologies in the future coming in to support, if you like, the the intermediated model? for me, the intermediating model does need an overhaul. I think it's
0: extremely
2: complicated, it, and that and then leads on to that that, that question of dematerialisation. I think, and and how that might be able to support uh, a better so, a better investor
0: flow. So, should the industry and the market be looking at dematerialisation for an answer to the intermediation question? So, obviously, amongst other questions, but why not concentrate the effort on? Dematerialization and ensure it delivers speed, cost, accuracy, security.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, absolutely. Uh, uh, agree to all of that. Um, it does resolve the problem to a certain degree um, and, and removes the cost of paper flow for the retail shareholder. And it frees the, the retail shareholder um, from the only option that is currently available to them. So, so it will provide choice. And, and let's go back again over to Ireland, actually. It's, it, it's, a, it's an important feature. Um, I, the Irish market is going to dematerialise um, under the Central Security Depository Regulations on the 1st of January 2023. We've got just under a year. And I think we're going we're to see some learnings from that. Um, are we going to see in 2023 and beyond the retail shareholder moving out of that intermediated model back to a registered position in the register? I would like to think that they would Um, and and that will prove a point uh, for the UK market and and, and having a non-dematerialised system is is very old-fashioned and and not in the best interest of UK PLC. So I I would like to see uh, dematerialisation obviously be uh, um, successful in Ireland. Uh, We're going to implement it in the UK but there's no timetable for that whatsoever at the moment although the registrar's group um, are, are, are constantly pushing for, for some answers from, from government and Treasury in base on that. So the question was, why not concentrate the effort on dematerialisation? Um, that's certainly that's certainly in the office. We, we are certainly concentrating on dematerialisation. Intermediation is something that, that that also needs to be looked at. And looking at it in the round is, is what we're doing. So uh, there's going to be a lot more to follow on all of this.
0: So SRD2, now that presented an opportunity to improve intermediation, but the UK passed on that, probably, I guess, because Brexit was looming. Is amending the current model just too complicated, especially for those institutional investors in the chain? Do we need to, I don't know, do we need a new approach to preserve shareholder rights?
2: Uh, another. That's another very important question, actually. But for me, the clue is in the name, shareholder rights directive means shareholder rights, it, it doesn't mean investor rights because of those people in the intermediated model. Um, so I know that's semantics, um, it, but, I, I, but I think it's important that the definitions are understood between shareholder and investor. There was, not There was, a, of course, uh, an opportunity to um, to embrace the changes presented by SRD2 um, and to improve those investor rights through the intermediary exchange, but, but the UK failed to grasp that. So I guess other than voting models like proximity that I mentioned that can deliver across the intermediate chain, wholesale changes um, to intermediation, as I mentioned, are going to be likely too complex. And, and I think, personally, that DMAT is going to provide the opportunity for investors to to live outside of the intermediated model, to become the registered shareholder, uh, and, and and by such, therefore, receive the full rights that they that they um, would enjoy uh, as opposed to to being an intermediated model there, there's there's also the question and we've seen already that srd 2 hasn't you know hasn't delivered for the uk one would question has it delivered for the eu uh, and i would argue that there remains a lack of harmony even now across the eu uh, with different markets uh, operating srd2 in different ways so that the the concept and the construct of SRD 2 haven't quite panned out. And I think the way that the EU wanted, uh, the UK have taken its approach, Ireland has implemented uh, SRD 2 but at the same time have a new CSD in place. We have DMAT coming in Ireland. So a lot of these questions, I think, uh, will remain, remain questions uh, for some time yet until we until we're in a position that, the, the end investor and or the current shareholder's choice about where they hold their ship.
0: Great, thanks. Yeah. I'll, keep, I'll keep an eye on your LinkedIn, Jay, for some updates. Yeah. Then. <laughs> Thank you. So AGMs, whilst some companies have secured a large online attendance at AGMs, circumstances have uh, certainly forced that in some respects. Is it something that more companies should realistically aspire to? And maybe G, I could start with you since we're we're on you.
2: Me again? <laughs> okay. uh, yes, I think so. Actually, um, the problem is we we, we see uh, apathy and proxy voting. Uh, for example, last year and the year before, less than five percent of registered shareholders actually vote, actually exercise their right to submit a proxy, and, and uh, you know that that represents about fifty-seven percent, fifty-eight percent of of issued share capital. So there's clearly um, some apathy, and it doesn't matter whether you look at that in in the paper form or in the digital form. I'm, I'm talking about that's a combined approach. Um, so, but there are advantages, I think, to online um, meetings, um, and and some of those will be from a shareholders' point of view. Of course, you know, there's there's the the, the removal of travel. You know, you can do it from the comfort of your home, your or your, your office, and it allows access to a broader range of shareholders. Um, so it's not just the the same old people that turn up week in, week out to to, to shout AGMs in London or Birmingham or Dublin or wherever it may be, Um, you you pull them in from everywhere. But I think everyone accepts that that attendance and voting are not going to be automatically improved, if you will, via a switch to to online technology. Although there are some notable exceptions in the market and some companies have had uh, some great results in 2020 and 2021 with their their virtual or their hybrid meetings. I won't go into those just yet. I think the problem is more about engagement, actually. Um, I think connecting investors is the only way that voting and attendance will increase. Um, and, and much of the effort can be done online. You know, Asking for meeting questions to be lodged on the website, holding a shareholder forum throughout the year, um, perhaps even developing a regular communication channel for shareholders that all of that would help. So a little bit more than you're doing today, um, rather than just relying on a notice of meeting for example, engaging with shareholders outside of that cycle to bring them more engaged, to bring them more into to what the company's doing, I think is probably the more of the way forward rather than just jumping straight into a virtual AGM, which we, which I'm sure any anyway, registrar would be happy to, to help with, actually. So there's there's, well, a, there's the sorry. It's me- especially
0: us, surely,
2: Jim. Oh, especially us, and and of course uh, 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 David Chase Lopes at uh, uh, at BF King, and of course our colleagues at Onit Capital. But um, there has to be a proactive effort made. And I mentioned this earlier. It's not just about companies making that that proactive effort. It's got to be the the investor and the shareholder too. Um, and although there is some cost to, to holding a virtual or hybrid meeting, I think a lot of that can be mitigated from in the in the short to, to medium term more engaged better engagement and and a more engaged uh shareholder shareholder base that that actually is paying attention to what's going on
0: yeah no i do think um you know education of investors um especially retail investors is is True. very important i mean I'll i'll put my hands up i am a lazy shareholder i like you know <laughs> i get i won't tell you the company but there is there is one that i invest in that i do get a piece of paper and i think oh I trust the board to do it. They can just crack on with it. I'm not going to rock up, um, which is shocking considering where I work. But um, Jay can tell me off for that later. Um, (laughs) David, Melissa, is there anything you would add to that? Perhaps David Uh, first.
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sarah. Um, uh, Most of our work is with institutional investors, and we have seen generally across uh, Europe and the United Kingdom you know, strong levels of, of participation in the UK, despite the issues with the quorum levels in the Irish market that often have FTSE names there, um, was still above seventy percent for last year. Um, and what we notice is they have, you know, stewardship is absolutely related to voting, and uh, they are very active. But the way that an institutional investor votes, because it isn't directly held as Jay has indicated, is through their custodians. So they do it electronically, but well in advance. And there's a tremendous amount of conversation and road showing and selling of the, the board story and the key resolutions well in advance to make sure that the company is presenting the resolution in the AGM and let's say in line with general best practice and when they're not to be able to apply um, A legitimate explanation of why an exception should be made. So, so I don't think that that constituency is as focused on hybrid versus um, physical versus um, just like, you know, virtual, however, where it would become much more important would be in an activist situation where everyone would benefit to have the final face off live in a room With all parties where anyone who had withheld their votes until the final conversation could do it, or if a resolution were presented in the room that those who wanted to be represented could legitimately do, that's a sort of a a separate skill set in a separate situation. But that would be, for me, the only reason why
2: institutions would have a, a worldview on it. Sorry, I was going to ask, Zoe, if you don't mind, if I could just uh, no, you go. challenge David, but but ask David a quick question. David, what's your experience of um, other markets so outside of the UK and Ireland, where uh, hybrid and or virtual meetings are, are far more uh, popular? Are we seeing uh, that type of uh, activism uh, working in the way you've just mentioned? So not everyone was
3: successful across Europe to put in appropriate uh, jurisdiction to allow, let's say, hybrids in the first year of the pandemic. Uh, so they had sort of closed meetings. And I was involved in an activist situation, um, working for an English investor uh, on a French company, and they had a closed door. So the final face-off wasn't really doable, and they even used the sanitary or the the public health re- rules to prevent having a bailiff in the room. So that was one that was a bit hope, you know, pretty kind of crazy. In other situations, uh, what we see is that companies will apply the law in their interest; they'll do what they have to do. But uh, we did a defense in Belgium, where we benefited from the activists not understanding, let's say, AGM rules well enough that they presented their resolutions too late and because they couldn't physically show up at a real meeting because there wasn't a physical meeting and it wasn't a hybrid, um, they weren't able to really put put a slate in. Uh, so a bit of amateur hour on their part, but at the same time, a little bit of luck for our client. We also had a very large CAC 40 decide to do a hybrid meeting with live questions and um, uh, the C- chairman CEO is a family member of this group, and they kind of waited online for no questions to be asked. So the big lesson in France after that was if you're going to do a hybrid meeting and have live questions, make sure you have some in, in, uh, ready just in case. So that's kind of just, just funny stuff. But um, one thing, we worked with uh, a very you know, a, a mega cap from, from from the UK on their AGM. And, the, you know, in so many areas of corporate governance, the United Kingdom is really strong and are always forward thinking. And one of the key issues of differentiators from the, say, let's say that the UK experience has been that they got the laws adjusted so that you could work through uh, the situation quicker and more clearly than in other countries and if we have stories in germany where especially in 2020 you know they like to have 20 hour meetings and and there were people who still tried to sue companies because they didn't have a physical meeting in the middle of you know the pandemic period which was probably its most dire and there was no vaccine so you have strange reactions but um my sense is that in anything that's really um, agent-principle approach to AGMs, the UK is very strong and, and uh, you know, you tend to find the right path.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think hybrid meetings can sometimes be perceived as quite costly, complex, risky. I mean, we don't feel it because we, we see them and do them all the time, but obviously if it's your one AGM. Um, and as David's alluded to, there's a demand from investors to be able to challenge management in a physical setting. Um, do physical meetings really represent the most sort of cost-effective means of holding an AGM, especially if you don't have a large retail shareholder base?
2: Uh, well, it goes to the previous question, really, I think. Um, we've seen, I mean, th- think about the, the shareholder journey, if you will. We've, we've, As I mentioned, we've got the apathy in shareholder voting already. We have apathy in shareholder attendance at the physical meeting. Um, There is some evidence during 2020 and 2021 that um, some company meetings where uh, a virtual element has been included has actually increased the attendance at the AGM, so therefore making it much more cost-effective and inclusive to to, uh, host the meeting. so for me, I, I mean personally, I'd like to see um, many more companies hold a, a hybrid or a virtual meeting. Uh, there is going to be a cost element, of course, there is, um, but I wonder if that's a small price to pay for the encouragement of shareholders generally to to participate in. in after all, what is their right in the decision-making process? Uh, I, and I and I think that's I think that's where this market uh, in the UK and Ireland needs needs to go and we need to follow uh, what the rest of the world have done already
0: David anything you'd like to add to that
3: I, I just say that generally what we see is that first of all you know UK physical meetings are short and on the continent they're long uh, and what's it it's also related to the view of the meeting and its purpose on the continent it's often this is the, the one opportunity per year where the shareholders can speak to their board and they don't want to give away that opportunity and and you know the three to four hour long events even go in germany it's a bit exaggerated and there's usually cocktails i, I i've been to um deck 30 events that you know uh had ten thousand people and you know it was a bit ridiculous or when there was a uh, uh, aventus which was a French German company. We used to have to come around and give proof to the German retail shareholders that they had come to the meeting, so they could write off their travel. Uh, so there's kind of kind of hokey stuff. Oh, I don't know,
0: David. Now, now, if there was cocktails, I might make it to the AGM of the company. You just have to. Uh,
3: <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, April and May in Paris. You know, you know, uh, I'm I was i investing in, in the sp-
0: wrong companies.
3: <laughs> yes, I, I love Paris in the springtime because I can go two days, uh, you know, two times a day to a cocktail party and and get a lot of free gifts and and stuff. I, I'm a bit funny, but uh, it is kind of that experience. So to give a sense of when I was involved with that directly, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that was a, you know, a, a 400 to 500,000 euro budget. Uh, and then in Germany, uh, some of the, the largest companies that have these massive spreads, it's a million, but it's like running a rock concert. Um, In fact, uh, in the heyday of like the the dot bomb, uh, I was at the 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 Vivendi event where they had um, like a French um, musical started the event for Jean-Marie Messier. So, you know, you you see stuff. And when we did the BG takeover uh, by Royal Dutch Shell four years ago in the UK, it was 30 minutes. You know, you know, there was maybe. Three thousand people in the room, but it was done and dusted really quickly. And when I've gone so relative, to Dublin,
0: relatively, the costs are certainly different to what they used to be. Yeah,
3: yeah. And um, and and there's a factor. I think the other thing around AGMs is what is its purpose in relation to your retail shareholders. And I would say that the biggest advantage in the UK to promote retail shareholders is the tax, the tax authority because that's what holds Europeans back is that the capital gains are pretty strong and it's not really an incentive. Uh, but you know, uh, if, if, if these events become a neat, uh, way to attract retail investors to make them feel important and to be taken care of and to learn about the markets and, and get close to the decision-makers and the board. So, um, you know, it is important, and I guess also the better you do that, the you can manage and really have impact on both sides if you're a shareholder. How you manage your communications with your stakeholders is a lot different because ultimately a stakeholder has moral suasion but doesn't have a vote. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the governance issues and corporate purpose and accountability become more challenging. So to a certain degree, getting the AGM right and making it as accessible, inclusive as possible to shareholders is quite quite important because um, the one question we're not asking today is, well, in a stakeholder model, when's the day when you're going to be able to have non, you know, have stakeholders at your meeting?
0: Okay. Thanks, David. We've only got five minutes left, so I'm going to move on to a couple of questions because We'll probably only be able to get through a couple. And um, this may be putting you on the spot a bit, Melissa, so please forgive me if it is. And you can always say, I don't know, I'll come back to you. But um, somebody's asking that when you commented about increasing the threshold of women on the board to 40 percent and for them to have a key role, they're asking whether that's already in and if
1: not, when will it come in? thanks sarah and thanks very much for the question so my understanding is it's going to be again based on a comply and explain it's going to come in uh, this year so in terms of <clears throat> legislation or reporting on it we won't be doing it until next year uh, well not legislation but in terms of guidance in terms of changing the listing rules and it's going to be for premium listed and standard listing straight away whereas when we were talking about tcfd coming in last year that was just the premium listed and then changing adding this year to standard listing so it's going to be both as far as i understand 40 they're, percent, they're setting as like um, a sort of threshold or um, aspirations to move towards um, and so it's building on as we've already seen and i mentioned before the Hampton Alexander review, which was looking to, to aim to 30, 33%. And before that, of course, we had the Davis review when we were trying to get into the 20%. So this is kind of the, the next iteration um, to ensure that there is real diversity on the board. But I think one of the other things is mentioned is not just the 40% of um, in terms of women and the key roles, which is one of the other things that mentions in that guidance but also to look at wider diversity. So diversity in terms of background, um, education, and it's really to really push boards in terms of getting that diversity of thinking, which is obviously what we're looking for, is to ensure that not all the board members are looking at through the same lens because of the same background, but actually looking at through different lenses and therefore can give a much broader perspective to some of the decisions and the challenges that they'll be facing. Um, as part of their role. Yeah, so that's my understanding.
0: Yeah, cognitive diversity is something that personally I find absolutely fascinating, and that you know I think it's going to come more more to the fore, hopefully. Another question, again on ESG, so I'll, I'll stick with you, Melissa initially. Is we we talked about upskilling the board, um but the question is, how how does the board upskill? Like, are there specific training programs? Do they, you know, use Specific resource materials in your experience. How are they actually? How are they actually attaining that extra skill?
1: So there's a, a number of ways I sort of see boards doing that. So we will do some board facilitation sessions in some cases. So that could be just getting the board to work better together, more constructively. But equally, um, I often see that on uh, away days there will be particular um, sections or elements that will be. Um, given to uh, covering certain topics, so ESG could be one of them, but we've often seen that around digital, certainly about legal aspects. You know, you'd expect the company secretary to be working with the board to say these are the legal aspects and doing an update, if not at every board meeting, at least on a quarterly basis. Yeah,
0: Uh, we have a a technical team that... um... is is doing a lot of work around DSG at the moment and informing our COSECs who can then inform their boards, um, again, so that that the the boards in turn can be upskilled, yeah. Yeah, so
1: I think that, and I think also, as I said before, it is a responsibility of the individual director to keep them abreast of um, developments around a number of topics that they would uh, are likely to need to know about in relation to undertaking their role just as they would have or should have or we would as executive directors. We need to keep abreast. We need to ensure that we do personal development and board directors need to do exactly the same.
0: And that wraps up our session nicely. Thanks again for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to our channel so you won't miss a single episode in the future. You can also find out about our AHEAD programme and how to get involved using the link in the description. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.